So every time you change an exercise, there's a known latency period of maximal stimulation on that muscle group as you're getting, let's just call it things dialed in, the neuroefficiency pattern set. So if you're constantly changing every single workout, you're, you're probably leaving some gains on the table. All right, Bill Campbell back on the podcast. You're going to be one of our most common and frequent guests on the show, but um, I can't get enough talking to you. There's always uh, always good conversation. There's just so much to dive into uh, with you, uh, especially now that you have your research review out. Now I'm getting these every month and it's just like, I got to get them back on the podcast and talk about some of this stuff. So thank you for coming back on, man. I appreciate it. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you again for being one of the few people that kind of guided me when I, before I started this, I laid out all my fears and worries and you, I really appreciated your advice on, in helping me get it off the ground and out to, um, out as my first real product. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's an honor of mine. So let's, uh, let's dive right into some topics. Uh, we're not going to do the whole intro. So if you haven't heard Bill on the podcast before, we will link the different episodes we've done with him. This has got to be number three three or four. I think it's maybe three. Um, if it is, I, I don't doubt there'll be a four in the near future. So, uh, we'll go in the show notes. There'll be some links for you to listen to the other ones of, uh, Dr. Bill Campbell in there. Uh, so the first topic we're going to talk about, um, and for the listeners, these are all topics, uh, based on actual research studies that we are pulling from Bill's research review. So if you're not subscribed to his research review, I'm going to link that in the description of the podcast as well. Um, it is, ridiculously affordable at the moment. So I would jump on it before the price goes up. I think you said it was $6.99 a month right now. $6.99 for, yeah, but the price will be going up really soon to, um, I believe, uh, $7.99. Okay. So yes, you're locked in, as far as I know, locked in for life at yeah. $6.99. So check that out, guys, because it, it really is. It's so valuable. And it's cool because he brings coaches in. So I've been featured in this already, but um, he brings coaches in to, um, some of the coaches actually have been on the podcast of ours too. So it's cool seeing some of my colleagues on there like helping, um, write reviews with you so he'll write the review and he'll dissect the study and then he lets a coach step in and give their opinion on it in for a like application aspect which is really really cool and um, not very common in the in this evidence-based world as far as the research goes but the first topic that we will uh, touch on is the programming variables so essentially we'll I'll let you kind of dive into what this study was and and um, what it showed and then I'll kind of pick it apart and ask some questions on the practical side but I believe it is uh, something to the effect of changing programming variables versus not changing anything at all and I think it was on a weekly basis was it yeah yes yep exactly a um it's actually a workout to workout basis okay. um so the, the question that I posed when I summarized the study was, does changing up your variables improve muscle hypertrophy outcomes compared to just doing the same workout all the time? And there's two ways to look at this from broadly. One, there we have what I, I call program hoppers. Mm -hmm. So somebody will follow somebody that they like, they'll buy their program or get on their program and they get bored after two weeks. Then they go to somebody else and they get a different philosophy. That's not really what this is. Program hopping, I think's not, I wouldn't even consider that because every program should have built in variables that do change over time. And you're kind of buying into that person's philosophy of training. What we're talking about is, can you do the same workout every single time or is it better to change up some variables? So I'll lay out the study. This was a lower body, a quadriceps stimulation study. So lower body only. 
It was a muscle hypertrophy study. So we're asking the question, does changing up your quadricep training program increase, decrease, or have no effect on your muscle hypertrophy in your quads? It was a, an eight-week study. They did, I think it was um, I think it was two workouts per week. Let me confirm that. Uh, yeah, two times per week for eight weeks. So 16 total workouts. Uh, the people in the study were resistance trained males. They were training at least two and a half years. So they were not beginners. And I always like to make sure that we 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 know what the population is. So here's what they did. Again, every single workout, one group, actually one leg. So they actually randomized by leg here. Um, one leg did the same exact workout. And what that looked at was... It was leg press followed by leg extension. So four sets of each or eight total sets. They did a nine to 12 maximal reps for each, each individual set. They did a normal cadence. So kind of quick on the way up on the concentric and then controlling the eccentric. So there wasn't really an eccentric or concentric bias. So how we typically lift, how most people typically lift. Right. And then the last thing was a consistent rest period. So again, same number of sets per workout, same number of reps, same rest period, and a normal cadence for each repetition. So that was the consistent group. The variable group changed one of those variables every single workout. And the way that that looked was instead of doing eight sets, one workout, they did 12 total sets. So instead of four sets of leg press, they did six sets of leg press, six sets of leg extension. All right. In another workout, what they, what they, what they varied was the total number of reps. They did a high number of repetitions. So up to 30 repetitions, uh, a range of 25 to 30. Okay. Now another variable that they changed from workout to workout was they did an eccentrically biased repetition scheme where they lowered the weight for each set. And I think it was up to like 10 seconds per repetition. So completely different cadence than the other group was doing. And then the last variable that they changed was rest periods. Um, they actually increased or doubled from two minutes to four minutes between each set. So a lot of variability, a lot of changing versus just keeping everything consistent. And what do you have any questions on or just any feedback on the design of what these researchers did? Yeah. Um, what was the like, did they track RIR? Like, was I mean, I think you said nine to 12 maximum. So are they just taking them all to failure? Was that kind of their way of uh, equalizing the different? It, yes, which is very important. You um, now today, 10 years ago, this never happened. But yeah, they had their subjects go to to failure or near failure on every single set. Okay. So intensity was not varied. Um, so but that was that's exactly what you would want. So I look at the study design and because they controlled for that, that's a good thing. So yeah. we don't have to worry um, that that's another variable that they didn't control for. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, no, that, that's the only question I have. I'm glad that it's, uh, and I just want to point this out cause I think, you know, it's important for people listening. This is why I love your work is cause it's so focused on hypertrophy and that's what I am so interested in is hypertrophy and fat loss. And so, um, there's 
a lot of research on periodization and uh, progressive overload and all these things. And most people just assume you got to keep everything the same or else you're not going to progress, but it's always focused on strength. And that's probably very true because you got to neurologically get good at the leg press in the six to eight rep range. And you got to do it with the same cadence so that you can build load over time and so on and so forth. It's a skill, but hypertrophy tends to be a little bit different in a lot of studies where they're starting to finally tap into this stuff as that is the focus. Um, so I just always, I just like to point that out because that's what I love about your research view is it's really focused on that specifically. So, um, but yeah, that's, I don't have any other questions, but I'd love to hear what happened, what turned out. Yeah. So the, the next question, um, and I always make this pretty clear in, in each study, how did they measure hypertrophy? Was mm. it through like BIA? Was it uh, ultrasound? Um, in this case, it was actually muscle biopsies. So they went in and took a muscle bi biopsy sample and they measured the muscle fiber area of the muscle fibers, which is good. That's a that's a very good good technique that we don't see a lot of. Um, the other technique that I do like is must uh, is using ultrasound to measure muscle thickness. Uh, and what they found after the eight weeks of training was no significant difference between the leg that was constant and the leg that constantly varied one of these common training variables. Both legs were around 12 to 13% of an increase in muscle fiber area in terms of muscle hypertrophy. So when you look at this, at least my impression of the study was it really doesn't matter if you do the same workout or if you do some variation from workout to workout. Um, and, and if a lot of people I think are going to th or potentially would say, well, you can't do the same thing every workout because then then your your body's not challenged. And as long as you're training to near failure, you think I think of it like this. You're getting the same hypertrophic stimulus on that muscle every workout, mm -hmm. whether you change it up or you keep it the same. So as long as you're maximally stimulating the hypertrophy stimulus on the muscle every workout you're going to get the same adaptation. So this isn't surprising to me. And while I would say you don't have to change up your workout much, I, I would make two other arguments. One, I do. I, I hate doing the same thing. I love changing my reps. I love mm -hmm. changing my exercises. Now, not every single workout, um, at least not my exercises. And then the other thing is I would make an argument for changing exercises periodically because that will stimulate different muscle fibers, different angles. And over maybe six months a year, you're 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 painting a bigger picture, so to speak, um, when you're stimulating different muscle fibers by choosing different exercises. So they didn't look at that. That is something that I think at least intuitively makes sense. Yeah, I would agree completely. I think that um that's very similar to how I train personally. It would be, you know, I typically have like one, I wouldn't necessarily call it a compound lift because at, uh, you know, after, I mean, I've been lifting every week for 13 years straight now. And after a while, it's like, okay, I, you know, my shoulders don't always feel the best when I bench press with a straight bar for low reps and so on and so forth. So um, I might choose a safety bar squat variation or a Smith machine squat or whatever it may be. But, um, I usually have like one movement where it's like, okay, I'm going to work on this squat pattern or this bench pattern, and I'm going to try to progressively overload over time. So I might do that every week just to get stronger in it, um, yep. even if it's in the hypertrophy range, quote unquote. And then a lot of the other ones I change up because it just makes it more exciting. It makes it more fun. It allows you to be more creative. And if you're doing the same pattern 
whether it's a push, pull, hip hinge, you're targeting the same muscle group and you're in the same rep range, same amount of volume, your intensity is there, like you said. Um, it, it tends to be that way. So I, I like that this confirmed that. And it also kind of complements the periodization research that has been coming out on hypertrophy, kind of showing like, well, you don't really need to periodize as much as long as you're training hard enough and you're doing enough volume. Yeah, and to that note, I have a colleague. His name's Dr. Sam Buckner. He's been saying that for years um, before anybody else was saying it. So I want to give him his props. So yeah. um, when if you ever visit down here, you, you'll meet him. He's he's um, I don't know if he's anti-periodization, but he really questions a lot of assumed beliefs that we have. So I'm I I I'm seeing that everywhere now. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to change. You don't have to do periodization or block phases. And, you know, it's like, well, yeah, I've been hearing that for many years from Dr. Buckner. Yeah. Um, I, I want to point out one thing and I will just like get your thoughts on it real quick. And then I have a, just a general question about science, just that kind of applies here. So the thing I want to point out is, do you find that, um, so this looked at tempo basically. So the cadence and the rep range, all that stuff. Do you think a good use of this uh, result in the study would be to maybe keep the the rep range and the the cadence or the tempo in kind of more static just because that might allow you to, um, I guess, just keep volume at a high point? Because I, I think of it like this. If I'm changing rep ranges all the time, there might be weeks where I actually do less volume than more volume. Um, if we look at like total volume down by the end of the week and how long the the I mean, if I do, I'm going to do lower reps this week. It's going to take me longer. I need longer rest and I might not do as much volume. And if my goal is hypertrophy, you know, or if I really slow things down because I want to change the cadence, that might actually lower my volume because I can't do as many reps or I can't do as much load. Um, so finding a good, like controlled, negative, regularly uh, concentric, you know, um, sticking with a certain rep range and volume, but maybe changing the exercises to stimulate just more motivation to train hard and, and kind of novelty and stuff like that would apply to this or, or help hypertrophy results as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, there's a lot there to digest. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely, again, theoretically changing exercises makes sense, but that has to be done within reason mm. because, um, and, and one of my experts was uh, Alexa Ruxtella in this issue, um, former student of mine, and she's, she's just so good with, with just intuitive thinking about training. And she made a good point. Um, she articulated, I had the same idea, but she articulated it better. If you're constantly changing your exercises, I think we can all appreciate your first couple, your first workout, when you do a new exercise, you're not able to get as many reps. You're getting mm -hmm. familiar with the movement. And then maybe the second time you do it, okay, now your movement's a little better and you can easily get one or two more reps. And now by the third time, you're probably in your groove. So every time you change an exercise, there's a known latency period of maximal stimulation on that muscle group as you're getting, let's just call it things dialed in, the neuro, the, the neuro efficiency patterns set. So if you're constantly changing every single workout, you're, you're probably leaving some gains on the table. Yeah. That being said, I think, um, I'll just say it like this. I probably have, uh, let's just say from my, from my lower body, maybe 12 different exercises in my repertoire. And over the course of the year, I hit all 12, but it changes like every three months. Um, what doesn't change is leg extensions, squats, deadlifts. Like I, there are staples that 
I will just always, well, yeah, hopefully <laughs> always just do. But whether I do step ups or I do Bulgarian split squats or I'm doing glued hammer, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Some of those will come in and out. Um, and you had said something else about a um, about cadence, maybe an argument for keeping that the same or changing it. My thinking on cadence is I, I believe there is an optimal cadence. And th- what that cadence is, is an explosive concentric going as fast and explosive as you can on the, again, on the concentric. So if I'm bench pressing, pushing the bar away from me. And my the, the data I'm relying on for that is EMG studies, but I don't really like EMG to, to validate things. There's a lot of noise with that. Uh, but muscle fiber, uh, glycogen depletion from muscle fibers. So you only will deplete glycogen in a muscle fiber if that muscle stimulated. There's no other way. There's no noise. And this, the, the more explosive the movement, the more two things are happening. You're getting your highest, your highest threshold motor units activated. Those happen to also be the motor units, the muscle fibers that have the largest potential for hypertrophy. So we're getting, we're stimulating the largest hypertrophy potential muscle fibers when we're training explosively. And then on the eccentric, we're actually making sure that we're getting a little bit of time under tension. We're not allowing um, momentum or uh, inertia to help with the lift. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it needs to be accentuated. A explosive on the way up, controlled on the way down. Um, Now that's not to say occasionally, maybe again, if I'm somebody's trying to to um, to do their first pull up, I would I would say, hey, let's do some eccentrics on your on your you know lower yourself slower. But generally, I don't like the idea of changing up the um, the the tempo or cadence or repetition length on on individual reps, simply because I believe we 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 have an optimal yeah. rep cadence. I agree hundred percent. And I actually really like her interpretation of that too. I think that, um, so what I often recommend to people is kind of like, there's this spectrum of changing your exercises and the newer you are, the less often you should do it because of exactly what you said. So usually like people ask me like, well, how long is like a, a mesocycle or a training block for one of your clients? And I'm like, well, if they're brand new to lifting, it could be, you know, six weeks, but it could be nine weeks. If they're progressing on these lifts and we keep seeing them improve and they're feeling great, why would we stop that? They're getting comfortable and use those lifts. Now, somebody like myself or yourself, I can change variations more often because I have a repertoire of a lot of exercises. So if I, if it's like, oh, this week I'm doing Bulgarian split squats, I know exactly what the maximum I've done for five reps and eight reps and 10 reps and 15 reps. So I can easily get myself to that high level of intensity and effort that I need to, because there's no learning curve to accomplish. Right. So, um, I love the way she put that because that's exactly, exactly how I would suggest it to people too. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's great. And then the, the only other thing I was going to ask is, is just in general with science, I mean, this would apply here, but, um, and more so to the, the, I can't remember his name, but the, the guy who has been saying this about periodization and hypertrophy, um, mm-hmm. how much as a researcher, how much do you look at anecdote and be like, yeah, we don't have the study prove that, but I mean like the, the proofs in the pudding kind of thing. Cause if you think of the most successful bodybuilders, natural and unnatural, there's not that many of them that ever periodized really. It's just like, they just do the same split, the same routine. They push themselves super hard and they're just, they're robotic athletes year round. And that's why they're great. So why would we assume that periodization for hypertrophy is so important? Now, if you look at the the best power lifters or Olympic lifters, there's a ton of periodization involved. 
So again, science or no science, it's kind of in the pudding, you know? Um, so I'm just curious, how much do you uh, take some of that into granted with some of these kind of things and be like, well, I mean, look what these guys have been doing. It's kind of hard to argue that. Yeah, I definitely would say that that enters, I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for all exercise scientists, yeah. but yeah, it enters my mind. I do look at the world or I look at my own life and I'm thinking, okay, here's what I think based on this. Uh, but if I'm speaking publicly or to students, I'm always going to qualify it publicly mm -hmm. with, hey, I don't, there, there's not data on this, but this is why I think this, or if there is data. Um, and there are times I probably can't come up with one now. The data might say one thing and I'm going to do something else just because <laughs> I want to. Yeah. Like I'm not a robot where I'm following. Well, this study said this and that that's actually a bad coach mm -hmm. who only does what the research says because there, there's an art to working with people that you that we as scientists can't tap into in research designs and, and what we call subjects that aren't clients, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that's good. Um, okay, uh, next study I want to talk to, we're going to shift gears and kind of talk more dieting and such. Um, this is on the most recent, which would be the May edition, I believe. Yeah, May. Mm -hmm. um, the study, I don't know if this is what it's called or if this is just you describing it, but what causes a weight loss plateau? Metabolic adaptation or a lack of dietary adherence, which I think is just a, a, when I saw that, I was like, oh, this is such a great topic because it's something we talk about constantly in the coaching space because there's so many people who, um, in fact, I just recorded a video on Instagram about this and and I said, like, you know, if a, if you sign up with a coach and you're, and I'm, I speak to mostly gen pop when I'm talking about like client specific stuff, I'm like, if you sign up with a coach and, and you have a good amount of weight to lose and they immediately put you on a reverse diet because you're not eating enough, they're probably, you know, for lack of better terms, full of shit. Like they need to look at your food logs. They need to make sure you're accurately tracking. Cause if you have 20, 30 pounds to lose and they tell you, you need to eat more food because you have metabolic adaptation. I don't know if that's the case. And a lot of times it's not, it's very rare that it is. So, um, but I mean, if there's a study on this, I wasn't aware of it. So I'm very excited to, to, to hear about this. Yeah. So you're, you're alluding to things that I think a lot of us and even myself, again, I don't work with clients, but even where my brain, my mind goes, um, that, that I'm guilty of. And I think a ton of coaches and what we're guilty of is us anytime a weight loss is proclaimed by a client. And I'm going to, I'm going to differentiate clients here in a moment. I'm going to categorize them, but we just, we just say, yep, metabolic adaptation or adaptive thermogenesis. And I, I think partly is because it's sexy. It mm -hmm. sounds technical and that all the, TikTok people are talking about it. <laughs> um, again, guilty myself. So uh, let me get let me give a little perspective to the discussion. Uh, first would be, what is metabolic adaptation? Actually, no. Let me go with the the client first. There are two types of clients that are in your world and my world, and those are competitive physique athletes and what I would call general population clients. And again, you probably, you might work with athletes too, but in my world, anyway, mm -hmm. two types of clients or subjects I'm this discussion, the research that I'm drawing from does not speak to the competitive bodybuilder or physique athlete. If somebody has 11% body fat and they're trying to lose more and more body fat, guess what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're probably going to have a hard time doing that because they are at their genetic limit for what their body can 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 lose with body fat. 
Um, and most, or I would make the assumption, competitive bodybuilders, and especially those that are more experienced, they track. They're, they are following the plan that yeah. you are giving them or that they're making for themselves. So let's make that distinction. We're not talking about high-level elite physique athletes. We're talking about somebody like myself. Uh, well, not myself because I'm a, uh, just the, your typical general population client who has body fat to lose. So there's there's the 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 um the perspective of the client. The second thing is we have to define well what do we mean by metabolic adaptation. So the question is somebody comes to us and says. I'm not losing weight. And we'll have that talk in a minute. Well, how long has it been? Why are you saying you're you're struggling? But there's probably two pri two reasons why they are not losing weight, why they would say they're in a weight loss plateau. One would be the one that we're for the last few years been been oriented towards, assuming is the reason is metabolic adaptation. Let's define that. That is a slowing down of their metabolic rate to a greater extent than what we would predict based on just their weight loss. And it's become so bad that their metabolism is now so slow that what used to be a 500 calorie deficit is now just their maintenance calories. So literally they're not eating in a deficit anymore. So that's called a metabolic adaptation or adaptive thermogenesis. The other reason why somebody might be experiencing a weight loss plateau is because they're not following their diet. They say they are, and maybe they even think they are, but they're not losing weight, not because their metabolism has slowed down significantly, but because they're simply eating more food and they're not in a caloric deficit. So those are the, those, that's the question. Where do you want to go now? What should we, where should we take it? Um, I guess what, what was the, I, cause I have a few things I want to say, but I think it'd be important to say what the study was and showed first, um, I mean, I, I'll just say it because then you can put this in the context. I guess uh, one thing I want to point out is like with metabolic adaptation, and this is what I tried to really push forward when I made that content about people jumping in reverse diet because they have metabolic adaptation. One of the biggest factors of your BMR that slows down during that is your knee, right? Some of it you can't track. Um, but my point with it was if a coach isn't tracking your steps, isn't tracking your, uh, or isn't looking through your food logs to make sure you're accurate, um, there could be some slip ups. And also if your steps are way down and they're not aware of that and you're not aware of that, then you might think the deficit's not working, but really you just stop moving so much. Your body adapted by just stopping your movement and you could just track your steps before you start a diet to make sure that once your body slows down, you look at your step count, and you're like, oh shit, I'm, I'm way down on steps. I need to move more. And then there's your answer, you know? Um, but I think like the thing you said about physique athletes, they track everything. Like that's the big ticket. Like, so gen pop needs to track a little bit more to make sure that they don't have this happen. But, um, that's the only thing I would point out. I would just, I, I'm really curious about this because this one you just sent to me. So I actually haven't even got to like read your review on it. So I'm actually really interested in the study and the results. Oh, I think this article will change the way a lot of us coach. Um, and again, I don't coach, but I, it this will influence at least your perception of weight loss plateaus. Mm -hmm. Like you you won't just automatically go in. A, that, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, and it's funny you said about having people track um, I think it was last month. There's a I reviewed a study on just how important tracking is, how much how much better outcomes, even if it's like seventy percent of the time versus fifty percent of the time. So anyway, we can do that next time I come yeah. on. Um, 
So this study was a mathematical modeling study. So it's important that we discuss what that is. They did not take two groups of subjects and have one of them uh, and and have a an inducement of a weight loss plateau. That would be extremely hard to do. And I talk about that. So instead, they used mathematical modeling and they used real weight loss studies from different human trials that were similar lengths. And in one case, they took subjects that were in, con in a confined setting. So there was no question. They were under 24-hour observation. So there was no question what they were eating. Like a metabolic ward. And they took another study. What? Yeah, yeah. metabolic. Yes. Uh, it was actually the Minnesota starvation experiment okay. trials. So they were living in college dorms in, in yeah. the University of Minnesota. They took other studies where they weren't confined for like six months um, and they just said, hey, follow this. So they they use their modeling. They they base their modeling on actual human studies. Um, but I, I, I always want to say mathematical modeling is those studies are only as good as the data that they're pulling from. Mm. So they are not perfect. The, the best we could ever do would be to design a, a large study with actual humans where you're inducing a true weight loss plateau and finding out the reasons why that's happening. But that study will never be done because there's way too many assumptions. You need a lot of subjects. You would have to diet them so long and so hard so that they would actually get into a true weight loss plateau. And for half of them, you would have to trust them that they are following the diet, yeah. which when they may not be. So there's a lot of problems with designing that study, but that is the best way to do it. So with the mathematical model, what they did was they tested it. They took the data from these real studies and they said, we're going to use that data and we're going to see which one fits our model best or which, yeah, our, our model, does it fit a an adaptive thermogenesis model or does it fit a adherence model? Because we have data and we're going to use weight loss data from actual, from actual humans and other studies. They actually use four total studies. And when they did their mathematical modeling, they reported that the data would suggest that when somebody experiences a true weight loss plateau or a weight loss plateau, they're not losing weight anymore. And remember, these are subjects with obesity or that are overweight going on a diet. They are if they're experiencing a weight loss plateau within six months or less than a year, which is when everybody tends to experience these, mm -hmm. it is because of not following the diet. It's not because their metabolism has slowed down to the point where they cannot physiologically lose more body weight at those calories. Um, they extended their models into the future for longer periods of time and in all of their models. And there's also some other research on the same thing. You will reach a weight loss plateau with metabolic adaptation. It just would happen after about two years of dieting. Mm. So um, the way I'll just share my thoughts on what I think the application is. When we have a client coming to us saying, I'm in a weight loss plateau, Instead of us, myself included, saying, "Oh, yeah, you're," we have to we have to address your metabolism. I don't. I think we need to first say, "Let's address the potential." Not not accusing our clients of not following the diet, but we have to start there. Mm -hmm. Are we sure that they're following the plan that we gave them? What are things we can do? 
Um, now, the solution might not be a might not be different. It might be a diet break, regardless of if it's a metabol a true adaptive thermogenesis, or it might be a diet break because they just are experiencing diet fatigue and just can't follow that. So I'm not saying the solutions are different, but I think we in the in this profession need to check ourselves and really ask or or get, let's the get foundational on adherence before we go anywhere else. Yeah. I love that. I think that um, you, uh, when you said not accusing them, I think that's really important too, because as coaches, we have to understand that if this is our profession, of course, we know how to track accurately and measure food. They might not. So they might think they are spot on, but they're not. I've had so many clients that I've had, uh, I've made suggestions of how they're measuring or how they're tracking, or they're just trusting labels and cups versus weighing on grams on a scale and just little tiny things that you wouldn't think add up that end up adding up to extra calories that they don't understand they're consuming or that they're just completely inaccurately measuring it or tracking it in the app or whatever it may be. Um, and it's kind of just a brain fart moment, but if they're repeating the same foods every day, they're doing it every day. Um, now for this model, did they, uh, essentially just trying to make sense out of it for the listeners too, was it kind of like, um, if they look at the, um, the, the ward metabolic ward, like those people did not experience weight loss plateaus, but the ones that aren't controlled in a ward did. And so because there's more in that setting and there's none in the metabolic ward, we kind of have to assume, well, weight loss plateaus only happen if we don't have somebody in a metabolic <laughs> ward, which gives us one answer. For To, to make it sim simple, yes, that's essentially what they did. Now, we the way you phrased it, that's an, in, that, that's an in, um, inductive reasoning. They actually made their models with using the... Um, making sure that they were following the first law of thermodynamics. They used some weight gain studies. They used some weight loss studies. So they made their models, tested their models. Models were good. And then they fit their models to, yes, to those exact studies. And I kind of break that down over several different graphs in the research review. Um, and essentially what we find is if you are, if you continue on your, and that's not a, uh, if you continue on your diet, you will not reach a, like, again, likely, you're not going to reach a real weight loss plateau because of metabolic adaptation within the first year of dieting. Now, what the other thing they did, which was really cool, they actually induced into their model a, a an arbitrary metabolic adaptation. I think they made it like 10%. And what that did was, so when they said, hey, we're going to give our mathematical subjects metabolic adaptation and a pretty big amount, a 10% amount, what that did was it didn't cause them to have a weight loss plateau any earlier, but it did cause them to lose a lot less body weight. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because without this metabolic adaptation, they were on, let's say, a 500 calorie deficit. But when they had this pretty large metabolic adaptation, it might have been only a 300 calorie deficit. So they weren't losing as much weight over the same period of time. Mm -hmm. um, and then one other thing that this has just impacted me, and I, I want to talk about this more, is if if let's just say somebody comes to us and and they want to be aggressive with a diet and we, and we agree they're at a place where we can be aggressive, we still have to consider, we have to match our prescription for being aggressive and our client's Cap um, willingness or capability of being able to adhere to what we give them. So just because we're going to give a client an aggressive caloric deficit, 
doesn't mean that they can follow it. Mm-hmm. So really we can we can and should only be as aggressive in our prescriptions as to what they can handle. And that may not be what we think, but it doesn't matter what we think. It's what they can do. It's what yeah. they can execute on. And this is why we uh, at Tailored Coaching Method, we focus so much on building trust with clients because we want them to tell us what, what, what they don't just tell me what you want, think you want me to hear as your coach or what you think would be the right answer. Like, I really want to know what can you adhere to? What is realistic? If you're falling off that, like, tell me, you know? Um, so for the weight, like defining weight loss plateau, would that be like weight loss plateau as in stop none at all? And the reason I say that is because if, so if, if I hit a weight loss plateau, I guess you could call this a stall and I have to drop my calories lower to keep on losing. This theory would say basically like if I'm losing weight and then it kind of stalls out and I have to drop my calories lower in order to keep losing weight, I could technically just recalculate my deficit based on my new body weight and it would give me the answer, which would be a slight drop in my calories and I keep moving forward just like most coaches do. They drop calories another 10% or whatever it is and you keep moving along, right? Um, whereas a weight loss plateau in this case is like, no, this is dead stop. Somebody comes to me and says, I'm in a deficit. I can't lose any weight at all. And I don't know why, right? Does that make sense? Is that the definition of it? Well, yeah. And and I took a lot of time describing your question or at least discussing it and thinking through it. And I didn't define it. What what I suggested in 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 my thinking on this is you, the coach, need to have an agreement with your client on and this is before the diet starts. So this is during uh, I don't know what you coaches call it, but like your onboarding process. What do you call that when you're yeah, we well we uh, we have our onboarding process, but we we go through what we call primer phase, and it's like we're not gonna we don't typically put somebody right in a deficit right away. It's like hey, let's spend some time getting used to you communicating with me, tracking properly. This is where I educate yeah. them a little bit and teach them. Even like for us, we even will say like when we do start a diet, the most common reason you know would be this. In this case, we'll frame it specifically to shine light on this study, but in sense we say like you know, as you go into a diet, it's common to mistrack or not be aligned. This is why we do this phase and educate you on how to do it properly and build trust and so on and so forth. Yeah. So you're, fa- you're already doing it. I, I articulated it's, it's essential that you have an agreement with the client on what a weight loss plateau will be defined as. Mm. So I gave two examples. I said, okay, you're not dieting yet, but when you do, we are not going to be reactive to you you not losing body weight, because that's probably going to happen at some point. What we don't want is for you, the client, to come back to us or to me and say, hey, I'm in a weight loss plateau. And I say, oh, okay, well, why do you think that? Because I weigh the same as I did yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Or I, I looked at my weight last Tuesday and today I'm actually a pound more. So if you have an agreed upon or like almost like a verbal contract, we are going to define a weight loss plateau as two week, two seven day weekly averages as not changing. Or what I did, I was crazy in my my thinking. I said, you're going to have four weeks in a row of not losing any body weight, taking a seven day average for four straight weeks. If that weight doesn't go down, we will agree that that's a weight loss plateau. Now, again, it might not be four weeks. It's whatever, I think it's whatever the client and the professional agree on. 
Um, and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm dieting right now. I've been dieting for, for a couple, a couple months now. And I know this, but I, I, this study really helped me. I was stuck at like 219, 219 for like, it seemed like three weeks and I'm actually doing a case study. So I can't change anything, even if I wanted to, but I'm just, I, I, I said, I know, I know this. I'm a fat loss researcher. I know this, but I still <laughs> struggle like everybody else. Just give it time. Yeah. What do you know? That third, or maybe it was the fourth week, I have to go back and look. Wow, I lost like two or three pounds the next week. Mm -hmm. It is amazing just being consistent and being patient because the alternative was, oh, I'm going to reduce my calories more. Well, okay, well, no, I'm, I'm in this for the long term here yeah. based on my case study. Well, that doesn't help me. That, that makes things very difficult for me for the next three, four months, however long I'm going to do this, where because I was patient, and I trusted, hey, sometimes we just don't lose weight. And yeah. I don't know why. And I'm a fat loss scientist. I wish I had an answer. But I just got to be patient, stay with the plan, and it works. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I would agree. Even in my experience, I, I think it's usually around three to four weeks that it's like that's a good marker. Um, sometimes it's a harder sell when people are paying you for a result, you know. So there's things you got to like focus on or work on or like, hey, let's shift our focus. Let's like let's just focus on some of these like training wins and something just to get you not so focused on the weight because we know it's going to budge. Um, but even to that extent, like I've, I've gone over this with my coaches on staff as well. And when somebody reaches a plateau, our first um, like move or first action is not to drop calories. A lot of times it's actually to either a tighten up their tracking and their measuring, or if somebody is typically pretty on point, they know they're doing well with their macros and tracking everything. Sometimes we'll say like, Hey, we're, you know, of course there could be, you know, maybe we can just bump up steps or something like that. But a lot of times I'm like implement a meal plan and, and just tell them, Hey, this isn't a permanent thing. We'll have a flexible meal plan. You'll create it with me. So it's not like you have, these are like the, you know, written in stone foods that you have to eat. Yes. But like, let me give you four options. You choose a protein and we'll place it. We'll create a meal plan. And if we can dictate what you're eating and we can guarantee that it's the right amount, two things happens. Either a, they start losing weight and they're like, holy shit, the meal plan's great. And I'm like, no, it's just that this is really hitting those numbers now. And you might <laughs> have been off somewhere or B, they do the meal plan and they go, I see where I was off immediately because yeah. they see what it actually will look like from a quantity perspective and where they were mistracking. And, um, and it, it teaches them a lot, but it's, it's so much better than jumping in right into a, a bigger deficit. Yeah. Uh, I agree. Cause again, depending on where the client's at, that's you, you don't walk back from that easily. Mm -hmm. So not, that's not to say that that's not the right, the, the, that's not to say that that is the wrong decision. Maybe the right decision is to reduce calories, but do that after a little bit of introspection and communication. And like you said, if you have trust, if you don't have trust, you really have nothing. Yeah. You're throwing darts at that point. Exactly. So I, I love how you're, you stress that within your, in your business. Yeah. Thank you. Um, okay. So I know we were kind of chatting a bunch before the podcast. Do you still have time for one more? Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's do one more. Um, so the last one is the lack of sleep, um, and abdominal fat is the last one I want to check on. And, um, I believe it was, it was abdominal fat, correct? Not just body fat loss in general. And it was, um, essentially sleep deprivation and seeing how that affects it. But I'll let you break down the study and what they were looking at. All right. So this was in, uh, and I'm not a sleep expert. I'm not a sleep researcher, but I read sleep research. Mm -hmm. 
And this was probably the best sleep research study based on length that that I've um, that I've ever had. It was a 42 day study. And these were the subjects in the study were non-obese males and females. And it was a crossover study in the sense that all of the subjects had a 14 day sleep deprivation period and also a 14 day normal sleep period. So they did both and half of them started with the sleep deprivation. The other half started with the normal sleep and then they crossed over. And what's great about that kind of study design, it eliminates any type of genetic variability or, or any type of differences due to the genetic differences in the subjects because it was the same subjects, both arms of the study. And this was a, which, you know, this probably easily puts this into like a, a six-figure study. This was all observational. They were in, they were under 24-hour observational environment oh, wow. for the, for, for the, yeah, for the, like the 28 days of the sleep deprivation. So what the researchers did was the sleep deprivation, they were not allowed to sleep more than four hours per night in the sleep deprivation. So um, could sleep up to four hours, but not more than four hours. And then the other group, it was a nine hour sleep, or normal sleep period. So they had to be at least in bed for nine hours. And again, this was for uh, 14 consecutive days. At the end of this period, again, they're focusing on abdominal fat they um they looked at they also did look at calories so we can look at that um the sleep deprived condition now again these subjects were allowed to eat whatever they wanted they weren't they didn't limit their food they did increase calories they ate about 300 calories more on average per day so that would cause them to gain body fat um probably you wouldn't expect a lot but the the interesting thing is where this body fat was found. So overall, when we look at body weight, there was no statistically significant difference in body weight gain. But as they start narrowing in their focus, we know that they ate more calories. Body weight wasn't different, but was anything different? And the answer was yes, in their abdominal region. And the abdominal region has two types of fat, your visceral fat, which is kind of the fat around your organs, that is highly associated with a lot of disease outcomes. And then we also have subcutaneous fat, which is what hides your six pack. So that's a little bit more of a cosmetic fat. Now, a lot of times they're, they're, they're related. So the total abdominal fat area was the, the sleep deprived group. They increased by about 9% of their total abdominal fat area. And the normal sleep condition, they had like less than 3%. So a large difference. And this, this kind of tells us two things. Um, one, we know that sleep deprived people are more likely to have higher blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, um, certain cancer states, um, CVD. So there's all of these negative health outcomes that are associated with um, abnormal sleep patterns. This is the first study. Um, that showed a lack of sleep in the short term actually increases the type of body fat, this visceral fat, that chronically will lead to all of these conditions. And again, there's there was other studies done, but nothing this well controlled. 
So essentially here, I look at this from two things. We have a, the the obvious health implications, um, but we also have their their subcutaneous fat was also um, significantly more than the than the normal sleep pattern. So this just goes back to sleep is important. Um, and if your sleep is really limited, as in this study, it's it's I would just say it's not our friend for optimizing our physiques. And chronically, it's not our friend for optimizing our health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I know there was like, uh, I think it was like Charles Poliquin. So it was never, it kind of turned into like a guruism at some point. But like, um, if you're stressed and have high cortisol levels, you're going to store more belly fat kind of thing. And this kind of points to that in a way, because if you were sleep deprived, your cortisol and your stress hormones are probably going to be out of whack. Um, it's interesting that it would send it there, um, you know, versus just generally anywhere. Um, and I think for anybody listens, that's like, well, you know, I can control my hunger. Well, if you're sleep deprived, you probably can. I think regardless of if like sleep deprivation causes the fat gain or if it's the fact that it causes hunger which is going to lower your adherence to stay in a deficit. And that's going to cause you to overeat or whatever. It doesn't really matter. It's causing the fat to be stored anyway. Um, my main question here, and I've heard Martin McDonald. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He has like Mac. I know of him. Okay. Mm -hmm. Really smart guy. He has great uh, nutrition certification and he's been in the industry a long time. He's a really great guy. He kind of made an argument against um, this is a while back. So I don't know how accurate it is anymore, but sleep deprivation research in terms of like metabolism, fat loss, and it was a semi good point. So in this case, four hours of sleep is like the the one group and then nine. I don't know the last time I got nine straight hours of sleep before, like even on a weekend, like I have my one day where it's my turn to sleep in and I'll get like seven or eight before my daughter finally runs in and starts jumping on the bed to wake me up, you know, cause she's excited to get dad up on a Saturday and I don't sleep enough admittedly. But it's never four hours. You know, I, I will definitely get hour, like six hours of sleep at times, uh, most nights actually in the work week. And there's occasional, like if I have a really like early morning, so maybe five and a half, but I never go below five and a half. But six is never considered enough either. You know what I mean? So I guess like oh. there's this big range. I'm just curious, like, okay, when do those negative side effects start actually happening? And when do the positive ones start happening? Um, I have an answer for that based on on, on reading that I've done, but real quick the study it was sleep opportunity so they had to be in bed no more than four hours doesn't mean they could have slept maybe three and a half and then the other one was nine hours of sleep opportunity so maybe mm. they only slept eight hours got it so this was not stopwatch yeah um it was sleep opportunity mm -hmm. but clearly a big difference yeah. approximately four to somewhere around approximately nine um, my interpretation of the sleep literature is the 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 number that I keep coming that I keep reading over and over is seven hours per night to prevent uh, negative health outcomes. So you get yeah. less than seven hours. Now clearly there's individual differences. There's people with a I've communicated with somebody with a genetic disorder where they can't sleep for more than like two or three hours, and they can function like normal on that. Mm -hmm. So we have outliers. But seven hours seems to be the sweet spot for most people. Do you know if there's any difference between um, uh, sleep opportunity and actual sleep on that in that case? Because the reason I ask is, is like, you know, I could turn off Netflix and go to bed a little earlier and get, 
you know, more hours. But I also know that by the time my daughter goes down, me and my wife have a, about an hour, maybe an hour and a half to lay in bed and watch something together and spend time talking. And like, that's just our time. And I won't sacrifice that. But that's at, you know, probably 9 p.m. We finally get in bed and then we'll lay in bed together talking, watching TV until 1030 and then try to fall asleep. But if if I look at that, then I'm definitely in bed for seven, probably eight hours, maybe nine. And I don't I don't think I sleep seven full hours, maybe all the time. But if it's relaxation and calming down and just letting your body rest, that's just as important. I think that's a different story. So I'm, I'm just, I just pulled it up. Um, what, what I have here was the 24 hour total sleep time. Cause remember these people are under observation. Oh yeah. Uh, so they can determine they can, I, I, I also believe I didn't summarize this. I didn't want to go this deep in my review, but REM sleep, like a deep sleep, all right. that stuff. So the normal sleep condition was a little over four hours per night. And earlier I said they only had four hours of total availability. So how did they do over four hours? And they did not mention this, but they must have had them. They must have allowed for a nap to get them a little over four hours. Mm -hmm. And then the normal sleep condition, it was about eight hours. So we're looking at probably a little over eight versus a little over four of verified sleep time got it that makes a lot more sense that's good i think um it definitely it, it paints a picture of importance for sure for people and i think um a lot of times i mean i'm guilty of this i'm an entrepreneur so there's been plenty of times where it's like well i'm not going to be like this for the rest of my life it'll be fine but and i hate to say that this is more important to me but i'm a physique training enthusiast you know i'm actually i haven't told you this i'm gonna be competing in october and first time in years so i'm gonna be stepping on stage so i'm very focused on Every one to two percent little thing I can get, so you know that actually leans on me a little more to be like, okay, maybe <laughs> maybe set the alarm an hour later, man. You can do it, you know. Um, but I think this helps because, like you said, this is the first study that actually went this in depth, especially on body composition specifically. Yeah, yeah, and like I said, it, it kind of confirms the broader sleep, the the observational studies, the correlational studies of abnormal sleep patterns and adverse health outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, which basically ties it all back to visceral fat. Yeah. Yeah. I love it, man. Okay. So um, a lot of really, really, again, like I can't say enough about your research review and for all you guys listening, like he, you, you touch on the best topics. That's what I love about it. It's so applicable to coaches. And I know the majority of people listen to this podcast are either coaches or they're people who are really into their training and nutrition. Even if you're gen pop, because you don't compete in anything, um, you listen to this podcast because you're really into this stuff. Um, I highly, highly recommend uh, his research review because it's just so good and it's so cheap. Like you got to jump on it. So I'm going to put a link to that in the description. But I also want you to shout out briefly uh, the physique certification that you're doing with Lane because um, we've had Lane Norton on the podcast as well. Um, so people are familiar with his content and the the two of you coming together to put together a certification course for individuals who want to coach people to accomplish their best physique, be that competitive or not. Um is amazing. I was really excited to hear that you guys were coming together for this and I just know there's so much value in it. So I'd love for you to just give a quick rundown of like what it's all about. And then we can put a link in the description for people to jump on that as well. Yeah. So it's, um, it's a partnership between Lane Norton, myself and clean health fitness Institute. They're out of Australia. They've done some other stuff with Lane mm -hmm. and we've, de we've developed a mentorship style course called the physique coaching Academy. So it's an eight module. Each module is one month where we are solely focused on preparing fitness professionals that work with weight loss or fat loss clients, whether that be competitive bodybuilders, 
or general population, soccer moms, um, fat loss researchers like myself who want to lose 10 pounds of body fat. It's for anybody that wants to have an evidence-based education on fat loss. Uh, and again, we cover the psychology of coaching. We have exercise. We have resistance training programming. Just it, it, it is comprehensive and it, it's a lot of information. We also have all our students read actual research articles. We quiz them on that. We have weekly live virtual sessions where Lane and I, as well as Clean Health and you <laughs> will come in and teach our students. So we've, we're, we're literally getting the, what, what I would say the best people in the world that work with clients to help educate our students. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I really think it's going to be a game changer for the entire industry. I mean, it's already worldwide. Um, and, uh, I mean, we spent over two years do making the content for this. It, it, it's yeah. dense, man. It's, um, I don't even, I have to look at how many pages the textbook is, but it's, it's massive. Yeah. Well, it's cool too that you like each modules a month. I think that says a lot because there's so many times people reach out to me and ask me about um, certification courses. And I always like, one of the things I always say is like, there's a lot out there, but make sure it's not a weekend course. It shouldn't be a month or less. Like if, if somebody's certifying somebody to do this in a week or on at a seminar over a weekend. It's just like, you can't do that. That's just insane. You can't qualify somebody to be that good at this, at that quick of a timeline. Um, which is what I love about like your, there, there has to be length to it. There has to be dense, you know, density to each module, each, every piece of the content. And you guys put too, so much into it. And, uh, I think both of you guys have a really reputable name and you're not willing to sacrifice that for, um, business money for just getting people pumping through it. So it's, it's a very, very high quality course. And, um, I'm excited to be a guest speaker. I'm, I'm honored by that, but yeah, I think, uh, it's, it's definitely the top tier out there and, uh, I'm excited for you guys. So we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes for that, for you guys to go check it out. Um, clean health has done a lot of different seminars and course stuff. So they're great at what they do with putting those kind of things together. And, uh, and yeah, if there's anything else you want to mention about it, um, feel free. But otherwise I just want to make sure people have access to go click it, go sign up for it, go, go check it out guys. Because if you are a coach and you want to learn, especially if you're a coach working with people who want fat loss and muscle growth. And, and I often tell people this all the time, even if you work with gem pop, the best thing you can do is study the science of bodybuilding because they are the best at doing it. And if you can just do that on maybe not as aggressive of a timeline with a deadline and you can skip the shaving and tanning part at the end, <laughs> that's a that's a well well written coaching program for for regular people. No, yeah, what you just said is I I hear my own voice. I've said that bodybuilders are the fat loss experts. They're ahead of the science in many many cases. Now I will say sometimes they get on fads that just aren't important. Right. Um, but yeah, it's I, I'm a fat loss researcher and I study bodybuilders. That's that's they're the experts. Yeah. I love it, man. Okay. So we're going to put links to all this stuff in the show notes for you guys. Um, and we'll put, uh, I believe it's, uh, Bill Campbell PhD on Instagram. Yes. Yep. Okay. And if anybody wants to get my research review, if you just DM me, I I'll send you the link. Um, and my website's billcampbellphd.com. Perfect. So it's, yeah. Yeah. Everything's Campbell PhD. Perfect. Uh, easy enough. We'll put that all in the description of this podcast. And man, thank you again for spending time with us uh, for an, a third, I believe, a third episode on the Tailored Life podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to the fourth. <laughs>